open again tonight, the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, 9, and 15, just briefly. The title of my message last week was, The Law of, and then the quotation, Be It Unto You, end quote. Because there's more than once in the Bible it either says, Be It Unto You, or it says something very similar to that. Jesus didn't say that to everybody, but he did say it to three particular people. And what we're interested in is, what was it about these three passages of Scripture that caused Jesus to respond to these people's request or desire so that the very thing they wanted, they got? Because that's what we want to do. We want to have the same experience. That what we ask for, we also get. That if we pray and ask that he will say, okay, be it unto you. Now, remember that these three stories we covered last week have a message in them. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 13, Jesus said to a centurion, he said, there came a centurion to him beseeching him, and he said, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. That's not a very good thing to watch, see, or have around. But there's a source for his healing, the only source in the world. No amount of learning, no amount of technology, no amount of experience in life. There is nothing existing on the face of the earth that can fix this man. And somehow the centurion knew that. So he sought Jesus out. And we're not talking about a Jewish man approaching a Jewish man. We're talking about a Gentile, a centurion. He said, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy. Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. He didn't say, who are you and what right do you have? Don't you know the children's bread is not for you? Like he said to our third subject tonight, but he simply said, I will come and heal him. You know, I would like to have him do that for me when I need that, wouldn't you? Well, what did he see? What was so unique about a centurion? Well, the thing that we came up with last week, he was humble even though he was a man of authority and looked up to and probably feared by a lot of people because of his authority, he humbled himself in front of those people and in front of our Lord. And he, he said, you don't have to come to my house. He said, you have authority over the very thing that my servant has. He has a malady, a physical malady. He's infirm. He can't function normally. He can't enjoy life. He can't do anything right. He can just live and exist and breathe but you have authority over such a thing. And I know that your authority is in your words, that whatever you say, because I've watched you probably, I've seen you say things to people that were ill or impaired in some way. You spoke to them, and whatever that impairment was, it left them. Sometimes it was a demon. Obviously, they came out screaming. Like this situation, I'm sure it was a spirit. Spirit of infirmity, the Bible calls it. He said, you only need to speak a word. You just say to me that my servant will be healed. You don't need to come to my house. You don't need to touch him. Speak the word only. What was Jesus' response to him when he said, speak the word only? He said, be it unto you as thou hast believed, something like that. And when he returned home, his servant was healed. He was well and whole again. Now, what we learn from that is this. If our approach to God is in humility, 
thanksgiving, recognition of who he is and what we're not, of what he can do and what we are, we can help us at. But we're calling upon you, and I ask you in the name of Jesus, according to your word. Give me your word, Lord, because that's all he wanted. Just speak the word only. He said, be it unto you. Humility. Take another one, chapter 9. We looked at that last week. Two blind men followed Jesus. Matthew 9 and verse 27 through 30. They followed Jesus crying out, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus, apparently, what he heard them, it's recorded here, didn't say that he heard them, but obviously he did because they cried out. They didn't whisper. They didn't have just a conversational tone. They cried out, have mercy on us, like that. And he didn't respond to them at all. You ever felt like that? You ever been there? You ever feel like that your prayers are aimless and, and they're not getting anywhere, nothing is happening, you pray that everything is as it was or it gets worse? And so they cried out. Why do they cry out to him? Again, who else can heal blind eyes? There's nothing that could take a blind eye and, and make it right again, not even today. I don't care how much stem cell research and all that other end-time hooligan stuff is all about, they can't do it. He's the only source there is for people like this. He said, have mercy on us. And he kept going. And the Bible says they followed him to the house. What a story. It doesn't say how long they cried out. doesn't say how far he went. It's just the two blind men who can't see the rocks and the holes. It wasn't a paved sidewalk. Like I said last week, I've seen the ruggedness of that place. They might have fallen a bunch of times. There wasn't a lot of regard and respect for people like that. A lot of people might have thought they were just cursed some way and they have nothing to do with them. But you know what? They followed him to the house because, as the story goes, they would not give up. They would not let go of what they believed. They believed that he could heal them. And they got to the house. He said, what do you want? Their humility kept them from saying, what do you think we want? They simply said, Lord, we want to be able to see. We want to be normal like everybody else and see like everybody else sees. You know what he said? He didn't touch them. He didn't pray for them. He said, be it unto you here in Shelbyville according as you believe. I mean, he said, not Shelbyville wasn't in here. But he said, according, verse 29, according to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were open. Did they believe? Think of it. Just think of it now. This little thing we talk about a lot, faith. There was more power in the release of that faith than any other possibility that existed on this earth to do what they got. There was absolutely nothing existing that could do what their faith did when he spoke to them and said, be it unto you. Because when he said that, they could see because they believed. Take John 15. That was our third place, the woman that came to him, a woman of Canaan, her daughter grievously vexed with the devil. We said means she was miserably demonized or possessed of an evil spirit, greatly troubled with an unclean spirit. Mothers would have great affection for children like this. Daddy has to go work. Mother has to stay home and look at this, listen to this, watch this, and care for this all the time. 
No relief. No relief. This is the way it is. Probably the world would say this is the way it's always going to be. There's not a medicine, there is not a pill or a drug or medicine that exists that can cast out demons. There is not a single remedy ever invented that can remove the devil. You can cut off the portion that he's afflicting in the body, but you cannot drive the demon out by taking a drug, by swallowing a pill, or by inhaling something. You can get one like that, but you can't get rid of one like that. And so it said, when she came to him, she with her broken heart, he answered her, it says, not a word. Not a word. Now, do you suppose that troubled her? Would it have troubled you if you said, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter, like a sinner, is grievously vexed. He didn't even acknowledge it. If he was going somewhere, he kept on going. If he was sitting somewhere, he didn't even look in her direction. Didn't even act like she was speaking. Look at verse 23 and 24, Matthew 15. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, send her away. She's crying after us, probably embarrassing us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she came and worshiped him. She didn't give up. She didn't quit. She humbled herself in front of all those people. Probably as we would say, she made a scene. Come on, woman. Listen, she had a lot more grief. I mean, her grief drove her to her knees. This, the only hope she's got is this man. And she worshiped him. And she worshiped him. And it doesn't say what she actually said. But as she did that, verse 26, but he answered and said to her, it is not proper to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Now, we can take one verse of scripture there and make a point that children's bread is deliverance, healing, recovery from whatever maladies like this that come upon people. Children's bread is what delivers us from it. Jesus said, I've come to bring this bread to the children. And you know what she said? And I put this in my own words. She said, I'm not here for a bite. I don't want what belongs to them. I just want what they don't want. What falls out of their mouth or when it falls on the floor, if you'll give me a crumb, what you've got is so powerful that just a taste of it on the tip of my tongue, that's all the bread I need to deal with the problem that I have. Now, I would put it like that. And he said to her, Verse 28, O woman, thou art a nuisance to me. Please leave. You know what he said to her? She wasn't a Jew. She was a Syrian, probably. And he said, Woman, be it unto you according to your faith. I haven't found such great faith in all Israel. Here's a woman who doesn't follow me around and listen to me like the Jews do. That's where he went. And yet here's a woman who, like that centurion, all I need is something that you have that they don't want. What falls on the floor, the little crumb, is powerful enough to deliver me. I don't need 10 people praying for me. I don't need a church spending all night in prayer. I just need somebody who believes. And if that somebody is me, then it shall be unto me according as I have believed. 
And those were the three things that we looked at last week and came to this point as part two of that sermon. If there is a law of faith, and there is, Romans 12.3 talks about the law of faith. That is, faith is what you release unto God because you can't do anything about it. Only God can. And only by faith will it work. So there is a law of faith. That law means there's an operating principle. There's a way that faith works. And when you have it and it's operating, you'll get what you ask for. Because the Bible said that. Jesus said that. So all Christians, thank God, all Christians have a measure of faith. There's no born-again believer who does not have a measure, a portion of faith. And remember Jesus said concerning faith, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, it can do spectacular miracles. Far more than you're asking for, far more than you're thinking, it can go way beyond that because it's like God. God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you ask or think. According, I put it in these words, according to the power that he has that you can receive when you believe him. Not many Christians are there. I'm talking about not many that have been in church most all of their lives. But that's what it says. That's what it means. That this is a law of faith. And here's how this is going to work tonight. If faith works by a law, and it does, if there are governing principles that cause faith to work, then here's some things I want to share with you tonight. One, faith will not work unless it is word-based and in your heart. That's twofold. It has to be in the word and two, your heart. You can hide the word in your head. You can become a scholar. You can write books about it. You can be a really great counselor of some sort, I suppose and tell people what the Bible says. You can memorize the Bible. You can dedicate your life to teaching the Bible. But that doesn't mean that what you're teaching is what you're trusting. Are you here? Because there's a lot of people who know more about the Bible than any of us do. They can quote it better, quote more of it, give greater definition to it, probably take you deeper into the meaning of things, but who, when it comes down to trusting Jesus with what they obviously are teaching, they won't do it. And the reason they won't is because they can't. This word's not in your heart. Turn to Psalm 119. I know you've been there before, but turn to Psalm 119 and verse 11. If your faith is not based on the word, it won't work. And if you're quoting the Bible, but you don't have this in your heart, and there's a certain kind of fear or uncertainty that it'll work, it's still in faith. Faith connects with these two things. These two things are essential for you to have biblical faith. It's not who knows the most Bible, it's who believes what the Bible says. And there are still things that we can quote that we're not sure we can trust ourselves, that we would be a little bit frightened if we had to take God at his word for everything. What if every hospital, every drugstore in the world blew up tomorrow, nobody was hurt, they all knew it was coming, got out of there, and every hospital, every drugstore, every laboratory in this country blew up. There were no more hospitals and no more drugstores. What would happen to Christians? What would happen? It'd be a chaos. You would realize that after all the years we've been talking about Jesus 
and all the good biblical themes and things about Jesus, it still bothers us. It still bothers us that what if that was all I had? And yet when you find it's like finding a treasure that you've been looking for your whole life. This is all I need. Don't they sing songs in some of those churches? He's all, he's all I need. Wonder why they would sing that. Wonder why anybody in the church would sing that. Is it possible, listen to me, is it possible that Jesus is all we need? What is it about him then that is all we need? Well, the pages in that book that's in your lap there before you describes in detail, and it'll describe it every time you look at it, as often as you look at it, and as much of it as you want, you'll get it. And the more you read it, the more you find out that he is all you need, that you really can trust in the Lord with all your heart and forget your own understanding. Lean not to your educated ways in this world. In all your ways, acknowledge him, him, not that, him. And the Bible said he will direct your steps. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what Christians are supposed to cry out for? That God alone is all I need? It can come to that and it should come to that. When God gave us his word, he gave us a source. Not only what we can have, but how we can get it. Now, if it only becomes poetic and if it only becomes sort of a just beautiful poetry in the Bible and just a beautiful prose and how the King James, boy, I just love to hear that. If that's all it is, that's all it'll ever be. It's just a lovely word, a lovely song that produces nothing. But when you take people that really want that word to be their life, and they begin to hide this word in their heart. Have you found Psalm 119 yet? Verse 11, he said, Thy word have I hid where? In my heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart, because your word is a declaration of what is right and what is a right way. And he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it's what? Now, if I know the right way to go, if God opens my eyes to behold wondrous things from his law, if he gives me the vision to see it, will he not watch over that word to perform it? Did he not say that this is what he does, that he makes no aimless promises, that if he said it, He'll do it. It says that somewhere in the Bible, doesn't it? Numbers, the evangelical book, Numbers. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. I want to do what you show me. I want to do it right. I want to live the right way. I want to have the assurance in my heart as I live this way that what you've said you will do that if you spoke it, you'll make it good, that you really did send your word out with power, that it will not return empty, but that you will cause the word you're giving us in this church, that the word you're giving us really is what you accomplish and what you prosper on this earth. This really is what God wants us to be assured of. If you go a couple books over to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 15 and verse 16 concerning the word, 
here's the effect it has on those who taste it and see that it's good. Remember that verse, taste and see that the Lord is good? Blessed are those that put their trust in him. What does he mean, taste and see that the Lord is good? Well, it's his word, isn't it? Isn't the word compared to something you eat? Like man doesn't live by, but by every word of God? What does he say in Jeremiah 15, 16? He said, thy words were found. If you search for them, you'll find them. He said, thy words were found, and I did eat them. That is, I received them. I made your words to become a part of what's on the inside of me, whatever you want to call it, where I store the word. My heart. Thy word, like a psalmist said, thy word have I hid in my heart. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. Or let's say this, I did hide this word in my heart. I made it a point to memorize it. I want to remember it. I made it a point every day when I'm at least by myself somewhere during the day to see if I can quote this verse. Memory doesn't make things work, but memory means that you keep thinking about it. This word is on your mind. You mull it over. It's Psalm 1. You meditate on it. You see how much you can remember every day or just mental exercises, biblical exercises. Again, name the books of the Bible. How many are there? Where's the middle of the Bible? How many in the New Testament? How many in the Old? I know that's not big-time stuff, but most Christians couldn't do that. If they could get a million dollars on Jeopardy, they couldn't do it. And yet, the most popular book ever printed is the Bible. It's probably the least familiar. And yet, the content in Scripture, what's in the Bible, solely solely for God's people. It's not for anybody else. It is only for God's people. And the almighty God who created heaven and earth assures us that if you will take this word and hide it in your heart, I'll do what it says. You begin to add up all your problems, all your possible problems, all the things that could come your way in life, and you lay it before the power that I just spoke to you. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above. Lay it before all of that and realize that God is bigger than life. And the fact that he would give to people like us the insight and his word, his promise, that he'll do all these things, I think is just absolutely amazing. There's a verse in the scripture that kind of puts this together for us, showing how this relationship produces power. A relationship that's supposed to be with us in John chapter 15. If you go back there, this is a very well-known verse of scripture. Jesus said, if you abide in me, if you abide in me and my words or word abides in you, here's the promise. Now, abiding is what I've been talking about. Well, first you're curious, then you learn, then he gives you illumination and you see it because he can show it to you. And suddenly you see something you've never seen before in the light that he gives it. You never saw it that way. Now there's hope, there's assurance. Something is bigger in life than you realize, and that's this word. If it would just work like that, I know it says all these, what things have you desire you pray. I wish it would work like, well, it does work like that. If it doesn't really work like that, then somebody's misleading us. 
And if we've been taught that it might not work like that, then you've been misled. Two ways here. I think the safe side is to say that if God said it, he'll do it. Whether you understand it or not, whether you believe it or not, if he said it, he will do it. There's nothing greater, nothing greater. John 15 said, if you abide in me, the word essentially means to remain in. It's a place of dwelling. If you abide, a place where you want to be, if you abide in me and my words that you hear, some of you have been in church all your life. You've heard more than your ancestors put together probably ever heard as far as teaching. But if it word doesn't abide in you, then it was just a church night and a church meeting. But Jesus said, if you abide in me, and you, as an act of your will, have this word to abide in your hearts, here's the deal. When it comes time to pray, somebody needs prayer, when you pray, you shall receive it. Does it say that? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you will. Does it really say that? Surely it says that. I thought, I looked at this the other day and it said that. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done. This is absolutely essential for you to have a relationship to God. He opens your eyes so you can discover something that you've never seen before in a way you've never seen it. This is the work of God, opening eyes. You go, oh, maybe you've never had that experience. Maybe you've had it a bunch of times. But when your heart is quickened, the word brings life. It gives life to your heart. You see things the way God sees it. And it's challenged in your head, your mind your worldly trained mind challenges that because it tries to tell you all the ways it never has worked and never will work and it won't work. When did you ever see it work? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know that ain't going to work before you go this way. You know it won't work. It never does work. The mind says stuff like that. And you realize how much the war is and what is hidden in your heart and what is opposed by your head. Could it be like that in life? Could there be a war within a person over, no, it won't, but your mind, and yes, it will in your heart? Can it be? Because if what I just said is true, then the warfare, the biggest war we fight, is the war of, what does it say, Romans 12, 2. He said, be not fashioned according to this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. It's something you have to do. Let it be. If he said it, so be it. Your mind says it won't be, so you do it anyway. Your mind says, oh, don't eat that. It'll hurt you. And you eat it anyway. Because there's something bigger than the fear that's in your mind that was trained by this world and trained by experience. And that's the indwelling word. God on the inside said that he will do something, and it's up to you to believe it, to accept it as true. But this relationship that you have, abiding and dwelling in him and he dwelling in you, 
This is the way it's supposed to be. As you well know, in Jeremiah 1.12, that he said, I will hasten my word or I watch over my word to perform it. Y'all remember that? Like he said, I am watching over my word to perform it. Or another translation says, I give watch over my word to give effect to it. Think of it. Is there a verse in the Bible for the salvation of a lost husband? How about a lost child? Is there anything in the Bible about that? How about being broken, poverty-stricken, and wanting something better? Is there anything in the Bible about that? How about is there a promise in the Bible for the lost? Is there a verse in anywhere in the whole Bible that gives you faith and you can pray for or believe for somebody's salvation, that they be saved? Is that possible? How do you know? Well, the preacher said faith doesn't come with the preacher. You may be inspired by the preacher if you've got a Bible. Because if he says it, it should be in the Bible. Now, if he speaks not according to the book, then don't believe him. I'd say to you, don't believe anything I tell you if it's not in the Bible. If, but if it's in the Bible, don't believe it because I said it. Believe it because the Bible says it. That's our hope. That's the power of God, the Word of God. That's His power. That's what He gives us. That's what we're going to stand on. In our verse in Numbers 23, 19, He says, God is not a man that He should lie, nor the Son of Man that He should repent, that if God said it, He'll do it. Well, what has He ever said? Has He ever said He'll save the lost? Has he ever said he'll heal a sick body? Has he ever said he'll supply most, maybe all your needs? Has he ever said he'll bless you when you go out and bless you when you come in and deliver you from curses? Has he ever said that? How do you know he did? You got to find it, don't you? Sometimes that's what that notebook is for. They're buying notebooks by the bunches right now. School's about to start. Be a good time to get one. It might be on sale. You can take a notebook if you're really interested. Challenge yourself. How many verses can you write down without looking? How many verses can you write down in the Bible? After all these years you've been in church, how many verses can you write down without actually maybe quoting the verse? Write down what you believe the Bible says about your need. Where does it say he'll heal your child? Where does it say he will save your child? Where does it say you're going to have a house paid for? Where does that say that at? Protection. How about being protected? Does he say that? I'm trying to get you all to think here. Well, in our Numbers 23, 19, it says God is not a man. He should lie. The son of man that he should repent. He didn't say things he's taken back. If he said it, he'll do it. Now, the scoffers say, well, I haven't seen much of that ever done. You're missing the point. If he said it, he'll do it. If he spoke it, he'll make it good. The condition is faith. If all you have is that word abiding in you and you're out here scoffing at God, but well, you said in the Bible, I don't see nothing here. You said, in the, I don't know. Who said that it's going to work for you? If you don't believe it, all you're going to do is complain about it. It's never going to be an experience in your life. It'll never be your testimony because you don't believe it. He would never send you, be it unto you according to your faith, because you're already getting what you believe. You don't believe God will do what he says, so you get the alternative. Doubt works like that, too. 
Didn't I say last week that doubt and faith is the same powers? Same power. The only difference is the direction you channel your will. If I turn to God and I say, I believe it, what you said, even though my brain, my mind, all my friends and 60 years of experience in my life said that it won't work, it can't work, it never has worked, yet I say with regard to the statements of God, it will work. I have to overcome. Dow says, well, we know God could. And I, know, I ain't got no argument about the Bible. God says what he said, and obviously he's already done it. We've read in the Bible where he's done this and done that and done that. So we know that he could. We know that he has. But you can't just be sure that he'll do it for you. And consequently, somebody just shuts down people's faith. Congregations like to sing about faith and talk about faith and use the word faith when it comes to actually using it. Oh, I don't know about that. They say, I ain't too sure about that. Well, didn't we say to them that didn't God say that he would watch over his word to perform it? That he said he's not like us, that don't always keep our word, that he'll never change his mind. If he said it once, it's forever settled in heaven. Didn't he say that? Then why don't we believe that? Well, it's up to us because faith is a choice. Faith is an act of my will to count on God to do what he said. That's all it can do. That's all it is. It's an act, a choice. I choose to believe that if God said it, God will do it. That doesn't seem like enough. That seems like it's so helpless. But, Lord, I just count on you in doing that. And I can tell you, standing here tonight, 44 years later, that it has worked. It hasn't worked because I've tried to memorize the Bible and, and tried to quote it. So if I didn't have a Bible, I could still preach it. It doesn't work because of that. It works because when those things come your way, when he doesn't act like he heard what you said and he keeps going, when you have to follow him to his house and you can't see where you're going, when you have to cry out in front of a bunch of people who want you to shut up and get out of here, but you press in, that's when you show that I am unwilling to give up, I'm unwilling to back off, because my heart has embraced what you have said, and that if you said it shall be, then by the grace of God, it shall be. Now, when the human spirit is thus inspired, when ordinary people like you and me are inspired like that, our whole life changes. I don't mean when you're born again, but I mean when you, as a born-again believer, when this becomes a reality in your heart, I only need a word from the Lord. Something comes into your life that you can't deny, and people can see it. It's called peace. Because there's joy and peace in believing, Romans says. You begin to have this assurance. Like Paul said, I am persuaded. I'm persuaded that he is able. Abraham was convinced that he was able to do this. Sarah counted him able, and therefore she received strength to conceive. They all did something. They all heard something. They were thrilled by what they heard, but what they heard didn't become active until they did something. God spoke to me. I must respond. And when I do, it's the Father's good pleasure to give me whatever I ask for. That's 
the way it works in the New Testament. Acts 27, 25, wherefore, sirs, this is what happens. Be of good cheer. I believe God. What do you believe? I believe that it shall be, even as I've been hearing for the last 40 years, I believe that it'll be like that. I believe Jesus is coming. I believe he'll be on time just like he said he would. I believe he's coming back for those that look for him. He won't be late. I believe he watches over his word to do what it says. He spread his word like a sower and a seed. He spread his word all over this earth. Not all of it has taken root. Some of it did. Some of it has and some of it will. But God is faithful. And he honors his word because somebody who receives it rises up and takes this word as the way of life. They're abused by society. They're renounced, spoken evil of, and God singles them out for blessing and for heaven. That's what we all want. I want to go to church knowing that my heart is hungry for eternal truth. That I want to know with my heart, with my heart, because if it's not in my heart, it won't work. It's just words. But I want my heart to embrace this word so that when whatever comes, I can speak the word only and whatever I need will come to pass. That's what I want. I would think and I would believe and I would like to imagine that's what all of you want, all of you. Now, whether that ever happens, it's up to you. Nobody can make you believe Nobody can always believe for you. There could be a time somebody has to. Nobody can make you listen. Nobody can make you learn. So much of how we relate to God is all like an invitation. We're invited to come, and now do you really want to come? Do you really want to know? Do you really want to learn? Do you want to live by this law, by this new way of faith? You really want to respond to God like this? You know, it's going to cost you everything and you're never going to be understood. Appreciate. Do you want to live this way in your brief time on this earth? It's up to you. But I think these are the people that he says, be it unto you according to your faith. Now, another thing that happens when this law of faith is operating is this. It's because of your persuasion of God's unfailing integrity and your certainty about what he said, that because you're persuaded, you endure. You stay with it. You won't give up. You don't back off. Jesus said in Luke 21, he said, In your patience, possess ye your souls. Wow. Listen to it again. In your steadfastness, in your holding to itness, your unwillingness to let go of itness. You like those words? You literally possess your souls. This is what makes you steadfast. It's believing what God said. And in light of everything that contradicts what he says, you hold on to what he says, and you know that God is faithful and that he'll do what he said. Let me read for you from the book of Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6. 
but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. That verse tells us that we started rejoicing. And we'll end there in a minute. We started out in this life rejoicing over something we had that we couldn't define it and understand it. We knew something big and great had happened, that something out there, we're being brought into it, and we rejoiced, and we had a lot of confidence. We wouldn't give up and wouldn't quit. And he said, you got to hold that. Turn to Hebrews 3, verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if. Now, if I ask you a question just on one verse of Scripture, what defines us as being his? Well, we have to finish this. Over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the rejoicing of the hope that's the eternal life unto the end. Not just hold on, oh, I'm holding out. Y'all pray for me that I'll hold out. Rejoicing, it says, to the end. Something that's bigger than all your troubles and all your trials. Look in chapter 11, Hebrews 11 and verse 27. By faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. He endured what? He endured as seeing him who is invisible. He couldn't see God. There was no visible manifestation of God. Jesus defined God as spirit. Not a spirit, but spirit. What is spirit? That's why there's nowhere that God could not be. He doesn't have to go anywhere to be there. He's always everywhere. From one end of this existence, whatever we got out there to the other end, if there is such a thing as an end, it's God. And he's bigger, and he's greater, and he's mightier and more able than most people will ever give him credit for. But he said, Moses endured as seeing him, God. The fact that I heard your voice I was in your presence. I've seen your work. I've felt your stirrings. And I'm unwilling to let go of that. And I'm learning you're unwilling to let go of me to let go of that. And you know that he that started a good work is going to finish it. But God ain't going to let you go either. He's graving you on the palms of his hands. But he works this way in you. Making sure you realize that you got to use your faith and he'll even give it to you. He'll open your eyes to see things. He'll breathe on you, and you'll go, oh, praise God. And then you'll use that faith and say, okay, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He gave you all of it. That's why faith is always something that we release unto God. It means that I cannot do anything about it, but I have to trust God that everything that he said. My walk is not according to some law which I can do it, I can deserve, because I'm without law and I can deserve nothing. All I have is what faith can give me. And the only faith I can have is faith that comes by the word, and it only works if it's in my heart. But when those two things complete and connect, I am encouraged in my heart to hang on. Look at the last verse in chapter 10, maybe across the page from you there, verse 38. He said, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, 
God says, my soul shall have no pleasure in them. But we are not of them that draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Tell me how important faith is there. How important is it that you be in a believing mode? Not trying to believe, not spending your life hoping you can believe, but he said you believe to the end. Wasn't it in 1 Peter chapter 1, maybe verse 7, 8, or 9, one of those verses, he said you receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls? How big a deal is faith? And if faith is that big a deal, and it's always a matter of the heart, how big a deal is it you taking time to get this word in your heart? Because that's what God honors. Heart faith. Faith that's in the heart. That's what he wants. Because thirdly tonight, your faith won't work unless you use it. The law of faith, it doesn't work unless you use it. Gather all the information you want. Learn all the verses you can. All of those kind of things. But it will not work unless you use it. Unless you release your faith, it won't work. I don't want to labor the point, but I have in my lifetime been enough places and I can say now I've known enough people and seen enough this and that and thus and so that lots and lots and lots of people talked faith, mentioned faith, but for some reason they never use it or they let go of it wandered back into that aimless, dark life they used to live. The results are the same as they were, and they had before them. A treasure chest was opened up to them, but they wouldn't use it. See, faith is a work. Faith always does something. First Thessalonians chapter 1, 3 talks about the work of faith. A work. A faith is a work, a law a spirit, a gift, a fruit. What other word in the Bible is located like that word? And yet, probably the greatest thing that we could say about faith is when Jesus, when he saw it, heaven responded, all that God is, said, be it unto you. I think of Acts 14 and verse 9, when Paul was preaching, and he perceived there in the congregation a man who had faith to be healed. All he said to him was, stand up right on your feet and walk. And the man stood up and walked. Another time, Peter and John, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give unto you. Stand up right on your feet and walk. You know what they said about that later on in that same third chapter of Acts? When they wanted to glamorize Paul and Silas and make some kind of gods out of them, one of them was Jupiter and one of them was something else. Peter and John said, why look ye on us as though we by our power have done this? This man's faith in the name of Jesus has made him strong. It wasn't us, it was his faith. We simply challenged him to release his faith. Stand up on your feet and walk. And he did. He stood up and he walked. Let me ask you something. Has anything changed today? Nothing has changed, has it? Let me give you one last point, then I'll let you go. Faith is the cause and reason for our rejoicing. It's why we're in here rejoicing tonight is because we have faith. Because we believe in God. That's why we're so excited about it. But I'm just telling you something that I know. This law of faith is the cause and the reason for our rejoicing. 
I'll just give you one verse of scripture. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vine. The yield of the olive should fail and there be no herd in the stall. Would you say this man, this farmer, these people have lost a lot? They've lost a lot, lost their livelihood. It's Habakkuk 3, and then the last verse says, yet. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. I don't know if you will or not, but if you think about it, you take the words rejoice and joy, those two words used in verse 18 of Habakkuk. If all you have is a strong concordance, go back to the back and see how those two words are identified, joy and rejoicing. Because one of them means to spin around like a top, full of emotion. Woo! And they'll lock you up today if you did that and your fig tree didn't blossom, your herd was gone and your olives failed and your, all of that. But here was a man that had a different take on it. Somehow his relationship to God wasn't tarnished because of a bad year. His relationship with God wasn't tarnished because of a bad experience. His relationship to God stayed intact. And in the midst of darkness and doom, he rejoiced. You know why he rejoiced? Because he believed God. Because he believed. Bow your head with me. Thank you, Father, for your word. It's true, it's pure, and it's right. We need it. You've given it to us. Help us understand it, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.